This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome everybody to the Investors Roundtable. We're back for episode 19. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and joining me today is a fantastic panel, a few returning panelists, but nonetheless, we're very excited to have every single person on here today. Uh, We're going to go counterclockwise. For me, I think that might be for you as well, but uh, we got Tom Backrack from PFH Capital. What up, Tom? Hey guys, how you doing? Tom Backrack, PFH Capital. Happy to be here on this totally normal week. Totally normal week. We also got Yaron Neymar from One Main Capital. Yaron, welcome on this totally normal week. Yo, yeah, exciting week. I'm excited to be here. Distractions. Yeah, distractions are key right now. And then we also got all the way from Singapore joining us early in the morning. So we are indebted to him right now. We got Kelvin Cito from Slingshot Capital. What up, Kelvin? Hey, Robert. Nice to be here. My week has been really boring, but I'm amused by things that's happening lately. <laughs> wonder what yeah. are those things? Yeah, you know, we're just going to keep trying to imagine what those things are and totally avoid them completely today. I think that's a, <laughs> I think that's healthy for all of us. But at the end of the day, you know, we do actually have a, a, a pretty awesome topic to talk about that has actually, this has gotten a, couple, a little bit of news in the last week or so. And the, the topic being compounders, understanding what it means and and maybe trying to come up with some sort of definition here, because I would assume it's one of those definitions in finance that, you know, just like value investing, growth investing, you know, whatever you want to kind of title, you want to title yourself, you know, there's always a, a, your, everybody's own subjective definition of it. So I figured we would take a couple minutes or an hour, who knows, two hours. We're trying to distract ourselves as best we can here uh, to, to discuss compounders and compounding. So, you know, I'm going to go in order of who hit me up first to be on this episode. So your own kick us off, you know, Give us, let's start with your definition of compounding or what the objective definition might be, and then we'll go from there. First of all, did you get permission to use that term on this show? Because oh, I don't want to get sued. So I, I did actually look up the firm and I wanted to, you know, I, I didn't contact them. You know, I didn't talk to the person who tweeted about it either, you know, and uh, I feel for the guy, like what a pain in the ass that was. Yeah. But, but you know what? Look, we're we're we might just alter the spelling in the title. So it's a C O M P O N D I N G. You know, so just uh, you know, that's how we're gonna do it today. Let's talk about compunders. Yeah, compunders. So yeah, you know what? I, that's what should that so compunders. I would say my basic definition of a compounder is a business that. So basically, there's there's businesses that. I guess I could categorize it in three buckets. I haven't really thought of it. Maybe I'll come up with like a fourth or or whatever, but like the first bucket of businesses to me is like a cyclical business where like it's economically sensitive. And if the economy is good, if the economy goes through, you know, GDP grows 3%, maybe it's revenues will grow two or four. And it depends on what the broader economy will be. You could think of like construction type businesses, for example, or chemicals. Then you have businesses um, that, 
are TAM, you know, it's a TAM investment. And that type of business is, okay, the addressable market opportunity for this product might be every person in the world, in which case it's like seven or 8 billion people or whatever the population is. And today we only sell our product to two people. So our growth is going to be by penetrating the TAM, getting our product or service to a bigger chunk of the people that we can provide this solution to over time. So if your TAM is a billion dollars and your revenue today is a million dollars, you can just continue to penetrate that TAM in order to grow your revenue. And then the third bucket, as I think about it, is these compounders, um, copyright TM, sorry for use, compounders. Um, but the compounder bucket is a business that in, in my view has already reached its steady state, um, meaning it's already provided its product or service to the majority of the TAM that needs it today, but the TAM is growing at some kind of secularly benefited trend rate that's above the economic growth rate. And, it, and, and, that, and that's less dependent on what GDP does. So for example, like you have compounders like IDEX that sells diagnostic equipment to the veterinary space. I don't have a position in IDEX. I wish I did, but I don't. Um, but basically everyone who has pets today takes, you have a certain number of people who have pets today and those, and those people take their animals to vets um, and they get that diagnostic work done if the animals aren't feeling well because animals unlike humans can't actually speak to you and tell you what's wrong with them. So like if you think your animal is not feeling well, Vet, vets are increasingly using diagnostics to help figure out what's going on with animals. And those diagnostics are getting more complex over time. So you can um, figure out more and more what's going on with animals through these diagnostics. So the, the utilization rate of a diagnostic test per animal owned is just going up over time. Additionally, pet adoption is going up over time because more and more people want pets. So like, even though you've you're basically using the business is kind of mature, um, given that most people who have pets and take care of them use diagnostics to some degree. But the the pet the the, the growth in pet ownership across the country and across the world is growing faster than GDP, and it's probably not that economically sensitive. And the number of diagnostics used per pet are going up. So, like even though the business has penetrated its TAM, the TAM is growing at an above GDP growth rate, and it's very predictable. And it's, you know, it has a secular trend rate that you can kind of underwrite. And these businesses tend to trade for higher valuations than your typical um, cyclicals because they have very predictable, durable growth. And anyone who knows the compounding effect, you know, compounded interest is the fourth or the tenth wonder of the world or the ninth wonder of the world or whatever. Um, if you grow at above GDP, even if it's one or 2% above GDP for an extended period of time, and you get a little bit of operating leverage on that, the numbers in your out years, you know, 10 years out in your DCF gets significantly larger than if you grow even one or 2% below GDP or at GDP. And so they trade at higher multiples because there's predictable growth. Um, they tend to be in um, end markets and industries that not only have secular benefits, but these companies that people categorize as compounders tend to have good market positions and, 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 and hopefully like an oligopoly or a, mon or a monopoly position in its end market, meaning there aren't that many other competitors um, who are challenging these businesses. And so the margin profile is pretty good. The return on capital profile is pretty good. And like, there's so many examples of these types of businesses, whether it's 
Visa and MasterCard that you know people are using less and less cash every year and more and more card every year. That's a compounder. Um, I mentioned IDEX. You know, I think that's a compounder. You have um, uh, Invisalign. You know, people used to get wire and brackets to, to straighten their teeth, but you have a shift every year. More and more people are using these Invisaligns instead of wire and bracket. And so, and more and more people as they become wealthier over time, um, they just want straighter teeth. So like you have a rising middle class and you have a shift away from wire and brackets towards Invisalign. And Invisalign is basically the only player in that market. There are other people who try to compete, but that's a secular growth trend. Um, so th these, these businesses tend to trade at high multiples. They tend to be a monopoly or, you know, in a two player, maybe three player market where they have a dominant position, good margin structure and very predictable growth. That's kind of my, my quick two second summary. That was a, that was a long, quick two second summary, that was, <laughs> but, but that was, but, that was, but, but I, I think you kind of laid out the, the, the lay of the land there basically. So, I mean, Kelvin, Tom, who, who, who would like to jump in here to kind of give your own definition as well? Or just agree with everything that Jerome just said. Uh, I I I agree. Uh, but as you know, when uh Yaron was speaking, I also kind of <clears throat> drew something. But I'm not sure. It's I, I think it's kind of small, right? But anyway, just wanted to say that you know the way I look at compounders, I think there's two elements to that, right? First is that just imagine a graph. You have the y-axis, which is your reinvestment rates. Then you have the x-axis. That's your returns on uh, uh incremental capital, right? So, I guess when we look at things like that right you know you know for, for for a business to earn great returns you know you know for sure a product cannot be uh, commoditized it cannot be easily displaced by any new competitors and you know i think one of the best metrics we can look at it is really looking at the roe right um uh, regardless whether it's current roe or is it a normalized roe in a case with uh, business that are loss making but i think it has to sit above like nine percent returns uh, in terms of RE, which is kind of like average returns of uh, S&P 500, right? Because if you look at Charlie Munger, you know, it said that in the long term, companies generate share price returns that kind of matches the internal compounding ROE, right? So I think something above 25% would be really good. But at the same time, when we talk about returns on incremental capital, um, how can we ensure that it, it is consistent, right? That, that's going to be a, a very difficult question to answer. So really, I think, it, so the way I think about it, it just has to be uh, reoccurring either by subscription or is or either by a consumer habit, right? It's like we kind of like brush our teeth every morning uh, in a way that's reoccurring as well. That's by a, uh, enforced by a consumer habit. So the way I look at it as well, like how do we have consistent great returns is really looking at the, value proposition of the business, right? Because at the end of the day, what really generates the financials, right? Financials is really about, I would say the effects of a good business. But at the end of the day, we have to question ourselves, like what is a good business, right? Because uh, one of my friends recently uh, shared with me this kind of sentence, which I thought it made a lot of sense. You know, it says that the value of, of the asset is directly proportioned to the impact it makes on the world. So. I think all of us really have to kind of think about like, what's a great value proposition, the product? Is it a better experience? Is it a cheaper price? But if it's cheaper price, then, you know, currently, you know, VCs would fund any businesses. You seem to have unlimited money. So like cutting down prices may not be a good thing, but I think customer experience, a better product feature would be much better. So say, for example, Costco versus Walmart. Why do certain customers prefer Costco? Why do certain customers uh, prefer Walmart? Or even in, in, in China, right? Why is JD.com much more preferred 
than other Chinese e-commerce players. And you know, why is Square dominating over other legacy business? So I think at the core of what I what I think as a compounder is right, is that a compounder has to provide great value proposition, right? It has to be providing something that there's no close substitutes, which allows it to earn high um, uh, profits. But at the same time, I start to see that in the last maybe eight years or so, you know, we have so much VC money that's going around with very low interest rates as well. How are you going to compete with companies that seemingly have unlimited amount of money, right? So um, I think that nowadays when I start to see loss-making companies, I'm not really uh, so adverse and to say that, hey, you know, immediately there are, there are companies that, that do not belong to the compounder category. But instead, I just think about what are they doing right now if they are loss-making? Are they going to create a better product? Are they going to, you know, create a sticky relationship, even a sticky relationship. Because for example, uh, one of the positions that I hold uh, quite uh, significantly is this company called C Group, Southeast Asia uh, e-commerce player. They are loss making because they have a positive unit economics. And that makes sense because they are trying try to like build engagement a lot better. So I guess when we look at the reinvestment rates as well, the Y axis over here, um, I just think about creating uh, agency markets, right? For example, if you look at Square, it kind of like was a tool to kind of like transfer money first. Then later on, they do like payday loans. Um, if you look at uh, PaySign, they were doing Plasma uh, prepaid processing. Then they did Pharma. Uh, you look at Google, they were doing search engine. Now you have Google um, uh, uh, Cloud. Yeah, the Waymo, which is not like really taking off. You look at Uber, Lyft, they did transport. Then they did food and maybe something else in the future. So really, I think about uh, uh, reinvestment rates, you know, like there are not many businesses that could earn a lot of money and reinvest it um, almost immediately, right? But I think the great businesses that we see that tends to be compounders, they tend to have, um, um, you know, they are able to enter new markets with, uh, with their products. Um, yeah, like, like Uber, right? Doing transport and doing food just by using the same infrastructure. So really, I just think it's two things here. It's really your reinvestment rates. And second is your returns on the incremental capital. So I can, I can take that. I, I assume you want me to kind of go here now. And uh, I, I think I can, I, I agree with everything that's kind of been brought up so far. Um, and I think I can take it and kind of try to put it all in one sentence. Um, and give you my definition, my one sentence definition of what a compounder is. Uh, you know, I, I view a compounder or a compounder for avoiding lawsuits from durable capital uh, as a business that is able to reinvest cash flows over a long time horizon and attractive rate of return. And those are kind of like the three pieces I think matter. Um, and I can kind of unpack them all. Um, you know, we say reinvest cash flows because you don't you don't reinvest net income. That's an accounting entry. You need actual cash flow to pull into the business and reinvest. Yeah, you can go out and raise cash flow from the outside. That's dilution. And it starts to get complicated doing that. Ideally, the business is going to generate cash flow and can reinvest. Um, and, you know, of course, what they can't reinvest isn't part of the equation. You know, if, if you have a bunch of excess cash and you don't have good opportunities uh, to invest into, you know, you're likely returning as dividends to you know the investors, and all of a sudden it's our responsibility to compound, not the businesses. Um, when I say a long time horizon, which is kind of the second piece of that, um, that's just how compounding works. You know, the whole magic of compounding isn't that it does it for a year or two; it compounds over a decade or 20 years or 30 years. That's where like the magic of compounding gets in. And then, you know, anyone that's 
an investor falls investing, you know, it doesn't need me to elaborate on why that's the case, but it's, it's just this kind of full mathematical rule. Um, and, you know, I, I think the takeaway from that is that the business you're looking at to be a compounder needs to have an ample growth runway of attractive opportunities that it can invest into. Um, and ideally it needs to be somewhat durable in the sense, you know, things like it shouldn't be over leveraged so it can actually stay on the runway. Um, you know, we have, we have businesses that obviously drive themselves off the runway because uh, they get a little bit too reckless with their structure. Um, and, and I think the last piece I had in there, so I said compounders or businesses reinvest cash flows for a long time horizon and uh, an attractive rate of return. Um, you know, when we talk about attractive rate of return, you know, you can pick your measure. Everyone's got opinions. Um, I, I, you know, there's return on equity, return on invested capital, uh, cash return on invested capital. There's a million things. Um, I, I actually like, you know, Kelvin mentioned return on equity. I, that's actually what I like. Um, I think gap uh, net income gets a bad reputation sometimes. And, and the key is to check, um, check that gap net income that feeds a return on equity calculation against actual cash flows um, but also to check it against something using like a DuPont analysis so that you can kind of understand and assess the sustainability of what's driving the figure. You know, you can, um, you can lever up and produce amazing return on equity for seven, eight years and then go to zero. And that's ending at zero isn't really my ideal compounder um, for obvious reasons. Uh, so it's... Uh, it, you know, that those are kind of the key elements, I would say, that defines a compounder. Um, and that's, you know, everyone's ideal investment should be a compounder. I mean, it's for sure it's the ideal investment. And the challenge is, of course, going to be in finding them and and getting back an old value principles. I'm sure we can cover some of that later. But, you know, that gives you the my definition, at least that gives you. Uh, I think I think now we have a better picture of what compounding is, compounders, you know, the whole deal. And so, you know, the question that I, I you know, at the outset here is, you know, this subjective definition. And, and I would I would argue that all three of you have more or less a similar definition. So, where is where's the um, where's the subjectiveness? Would you say, you know, just kind of to work off Tom how he broke it down, where we have you know, reinvesting cash flows, long-term time horizon, attractive rate of return, you know, within those three pillars, what are, at least maybe for you guys, what's, where, where do you defer or where, where are some of the places that you would say, you know, this is actually more important to me within here, or, you know, this is my time horizon. This is what I define as long-term time horizon versus somebody else's, you know, um, anybody, uh, Tom or, or, or your own. Yeah, I would say it's probably quality, of the business, predictability of the growth and valuation that you could buy that company at. And so um, in terms of quality, um, to Tom's point, like if a business is able to reinvest its cash flows at an attractive rate of return for a long time, but then it gets to, goes to zero in the future or in, not, in a non-zero scenario, once it matures, a lot of competition will come in and erode the profitability of that business. Then like, yeah, maybe you built a very profitable business over 10 years, but then your profit gets cut in half because competition comes in or technology changes the business down the line or something like that. So I think you want to have a sense that 
once the business reinvests its cash flows at an attractive rate for 10 years and profits grow a lot because of that reinvestment at attractive rates, those profits at the terminal value will still be valuable and they'll be valuable if they're able to protect them. Um, in terms of uh, how durable the growth runway is or how much confidence you have in the growth runway, I think like the more diversified something is and the more formulaic the growth algorithm is for the business, I think people can get more comfortable underwriting that growth over a long period of time. So um, if you know that 2% of people shift from this to that every single year, 1% of people do this when they used to do that every year, I think it really helps get comfortable with the long-term growth runway. And then valuation. I mean, everyone knows that if you own a business for a thousand years, then the entry valuation is almost irrelevant if it can compound its earnings at a long period of time, because at the end of the day, uh, to Kelvin's point, you're going to earn what the internal rate of return of the business is over time. Um, but the reality is none of us own a business for a thousand years. We own it for five years, 10 years, three years, 15 years. And so entry valuation really matters because if you pay a thousand times earnings for something, and then, you know, in the terminal year in year 10 or in year 15, it's going to be worth 25 times earnings. You need a lot of earnings growth to overcome that kind of multiple compression over time. So obviously if you overpay upfront, it doesn't really matter how phenomenal earnings growth is because you're going to suffer from multiple compression. So you need to have conviction that the business will be valued and be will, valued well and be able to defend its profitability and maturity. You want confidence in the growth outlook. And then you want, um, and then you want to be some entry valuation. Got it, Kelvin. You want to jump in there? Yeah. So I, I got something really, uh, I wouldn't say interesting, but just a thought for everyone, right? Um, so, so to me, like as as I was hearing from all of you guys, which have really great pointers, I just thought of like you know if we could give a name to maybe a, a some companies examples, right? And I thought of one example, which is not, I think not something that everyone could agree on, but it's, it's this company called uh, Amazon, right? So um, there are two ways to make money uh, and that actually affects the ROE, right? So back to making money, like one of it is the high volume game and otherwise the high margin gains, right? So, and I think that these days, uh, you know, if you have very high margin, it tends to attract uh, competitors quite easily it, unless you are kind of like Visa and Master, you know, like Jeff Bezos once said, your margin is my opportunity. And I think that going forward, let's say we talk about like tech, uh, technology platforms that kind of take a take rates or commission basis, uh, a, better way, a better way to make returns is just by going with low margins by extremely high volume like Amazon, right? So if you think about like the internal ROE, right? That's something that we focus a lot um, as, as investors, right? But if you look at Amazon, uh, maybe for context, right? They, they could be losing huge money right now. Uh, but they are actually locking in customers quite rapidly through increasing the value proposition such as Amazon Prime on the platform and you decide to monetize later by raising prices, right? So uh, do we consider that as, as compounding? You know, it, it could be, uh, you know, attracting a wide range of opinions here. Um, but to me, I actually think yes. And I am slowly, I also start to get a bit more comfortable because what Amazon doing today is building that ecosystem for compounding to happen and preventing from any um, competitors from coming in because... Amazon could report immense profits immediately, like right now, today, like and just by charging similar to its peers or raising the prices. But that doesn't kind of widen its gap 
uh, away from its competitors. So, you know, they kind of took their money and, and reinvest in R&D instead. So what do you guys think about that? You know, there are some companies that are just riding the S curve, reinvesting heavily, kind of like building their, their ecosystem, and they don't show normalized ROEs right now. Do you guys consider that as compounding as well? It's quite tricky, yeah. I do. So I think if a, if a business requires external funding to grow, I typically think of it as a TAM story. If it's growing rapidly and it requires external funding, I consider it a TAM story. If it's self-funding, it's growth, in my opinion, and it's growing at a rapid rate, it doesn't really matter to me what get the gap income statement shows. It's, it's, a, it's a high return on capital business because it's using very little capital. It's able to self-fund. If you can grow 100% a year without accessing equity or debt markets, or even if you have to access debt markets, if you're not increasing your leverage ratio over time, um, if you can grow at a phenomenal rate without having to dilute your equity holders and without over levering the business, you're growing at good returns on capital because you're, you're not using that much capital and you're growing very rapidly. So Amazon was able to do that for a very long period of time because it had, it was being funded by negative networking capital. So basically you pay for something on Amazon today they're, they get the credit card payment basically immediately, and then they don't go out and pay for their goods. You know, they have payables that they have good terms on that they could pay 30, 60, 90 days later. And so they were using that capital to fund growth. I view that as, I mean, it was a combination of a TAM story and a compounder story, right? The TAM being that basically no one bought stuff on the internet and one day everyone was going to buy stuff on the internet. Um, but they were also self-funding their growth at a very predictable rate with good rates of return. You know, digital penetration, you know, on online purchases used to be 0% or purchases that were done online as a percent of total consumer purchases used to be zero. Then they went to one, then they went to two, then they went to 10. I think now they're like in the high teens uh, in the U.S. And there's no reason why it can't continue to go higher over time in a predictable way. And um and today they are very profitable. They're, they're, I mean, it's not like they choose to not show profits. Like even though they're still growing at yep. an attractive rate, they can't. I mean, they can't not be profitable. They're they don't know what to do with all their cash right now. They're generating so much cash. I agree with you. They could be more profitable, but like you're widening your moat if you continue to reinvest in the value in the, in the customer value proposition, and shortening delivery times, and having a better interface with your consumers. So like I think. The fact that they're able to reinvest in widening their moat while also generating a ton of profit is just a phenomenal business model, obviously. Yeah. So I kind of realized that actually compounders are, you know, like in the past, if you look at how Charlie Munger defined it, really kind of looking at ROE stuff like that. Um, but start, I started to realize that actually compounders come with different uh, shapes and for, uh, formats as well. Um, and, I, and I really like the way, uh, Yaron, like how you explain it, right? Internally funded, externally funded. And I think that really impacts the commodity process. So I, 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 I really think that was a very neat way of explaining it. Yeah, and actually, yeah, I'll say I'll say on Amazon, and you know, I think all you guys made a lot of good points in there. I think Amazon's a bit of a trap these days um, because um, first of all, not long Amazon, I'm long a prime membership, um, that's it. But the, uh, so, but they, it's a bit of a trap because I think a lot of compounder people We'll look at them and they'll point at them. And and Amazon was a real once in a generation business. Um, there are there are many many compounders out there, and Amazon stands on an island by itself, not just because it achieved immense success, but because someone was going to achieve that the success they did, and they were the one who happened to do it. Um, 
they were not issuing tons of capital throughout the process. They were financing themselves through their own cash flows. You could argue that for several years in there, their gap income was artificially low as they were building out warehouses and things like that. Um, and actually, their return on equity was really high for a lot of years. Um, you know, you know, going back to like 2005 and six. Um, so, and and in the end of the day, like your margin is my opportunity, which is it's similar to a Costco strategy. Well, like that's not the only way to generate return on equity. Um, you know, you, you can generate return on equity through um, wise leverage, which is what uh, Yorona, you know, mentioned um, uh, earlier uh, with the negative working capital. And you can also juice it with asset terms. Um, they return in assets um, very well for a while. So um, I think it's a bit of a trap because I think what's happened is we have a lot of companies now that say, oh, we're just long-term thinking, like, don't worry about the gap losses. Don't worry about the gap losses. We're just thinking longer term. We're like Amazon. And there's apparently there's going to be like 3,000 Amazons in the market in like five years, according to like what everyone's saying right now. <laughs> and it's just like, you got to be careful with it, especially, and this goes back again to the points you guys were making. A lot of these people are doing that while they're raising capital because they can't actually generate the cash flow. So you're like, um, you know, so I, I think he, I, th I think the Amazon example is one to be careful of with compounders um, um, because it, it's a little bit unique and actually it did demonstrate a lot of compounder things even in the numbers uh, once you dug into them. So. So, so maybe let's let's talk of uh, you know you, you make you make an interesting point you know Amazon being kind of on an island on its own you know then let's 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 talk about another an ex example of a compounder for our audience that you know is more I don't know, I don't want to say realistic because Amazon really happened that actually did happen that was on its own but the idea that another company might imitate an Amazon it, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't place a bet on that even though the odds are probably uh, nice especially in the long term. But, you know, uh, let, let's give a, a, what, Tom, in your opinion, what's another example of a compounder maybe that we could break down right now that could help give us uh, a real world example of a compounder, not a compounder, yeah. a compounder. Yeah, yeah. So one example, and I, I'll go compounder actually out of respect for my legal team. Uh, the, um, the, you know, one, you know, the one example that I've given, I know, like on this program before, uh, you know, I'm, I'm actually thinking, I'm ratcheting through my head right now. I'm trying to think what positions I can disclose right now. And uh, <laughs> all of them, I, I have a limited list right now, but I mean, one of them, which I've disclosed many, many times over the last year and a half, and I think is kind of the perfect compounder is, is live chat, you know, which is the Polish company I've talked about. Um, to me, they are a compounder because they still have a, legitimately high total addressable market compared to where they're at right now. So you can look at what the revenue is, what their fraction is, who their competitors are, and what the overall market's growing. You can see a path there. Um, what I like about them is you can look at 10 years to growth, see that they generate 100% ROE every year um, and reinvest 20% of that, grow 20%, they take 80%, send it back as dividends. Um, I mean, it's, it's this company which clearly has this massive growth runway, um, gets phenomenal 100% ROE returns every time they reinvest in a business. Um, and, and, and they have, they have you know, room to grow. Um, they could do this for, for a long time. And so they've compounded already. I think that they have another decade ahead of them. Um, wow, I'm just looking at it right now. It's amazing. 
Yeah, I mean, they're they're just a phenomenal company, and and it's um, wow, you know, and and but 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 and it, it, but it gets tricky, right? Like, because it's it's um, I think a lot of investors look at a company like that and they go, if you're reinvesting incremental capital at 100 ROE, like why are you paying such a big dividend? And and actually, and that comes down to some of the nuances you have to look at in the capital allocation, which is that like, if they reinvest 100 percent of the cap cash flow their ROE would drop way the hell down because they're being judicious and picky about their acquisitions. They would have had to start acquiring a bunch of firms. You know, they like organic growth. They don't want to buy anyone. They don't have to deal with any of that crap. They, they're like, they can keep doing what they're doing and drop a 50% margins. Why, why would you stop doing that? And, and when, when the management owns half the company, you know, they're going to look at it that way and they probably even like the dividend. So, um, you know, that, that that's a good example of a com- compounder. I mean, in the end of the day, it's like, the easiest thing to do is go and look who's been generating good ROE, who's been generating good cash flow, how big are they, how big is our market, who's their competition, and say, hey, these guys are proven that they can do this. And I'll be damned, like, they're still a small, tiny piece of the market. Um, so a lot of it just is simple stuff like that. And then, and then the art comes in of, you know, you're making a prediction that they can continue that. And that's where all the kind of scuttlebutt type stuff comes into the analysis. See, Tom, I'm actually a little disappointed because I could have sworn that you were going to say, oh yeah, look, there's this, the, the, I got this Kazakh airport that is currently in the portfolio. That's actually compounding like crazy because of Borat too. I mean, I'm, I'm actually kind of disappointed that it wasn't one of those stories. I have, first of all, I have a couple of the weirdest stupidest investments you're ever going to hear in your entire life I haven't disclosed yet. So I can't, I cannot oh. wait. Oh, by the way, long live chat. I, I, I cannot <laughs> wait to disclose them. I have something that's so stupid. You're not even going to believe that it. it's, it's, it's in the line of a uh, Kazakh air or not a Kazakh Kyrgyzstan airport. Um, so <laughs> I can't yeah. report in English, by the way, off topic a little bit. What's that? Do they report in English? Um, no, <laughs> no. So you know, it's interesting, right? You know, we talked about this is going to get off topic here, but but I actually think it's an interesting subject. Um, you know, there's 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 companies that report in English, and they've already attracted a good number of Western investors, and you can find them in emerging frontier markets and things like that. And there's, there's companies, companies that will that are, one day report in English. There are companies that will one day report in English, but even beyond that, you can even go a step further. There are companies that report with. Uh, scan PDFs that you can actually either easily use optical like OCR recognition so that you can then take the document and feed it through Google Translate and get a pretty good translation pretty fast. There are ones that already just have smart searchable PDFs that you can run through Google Translate. And then there are ones that give you such crappy scans that you can't even use OCR technology on them perfectly well. You you can't run them through Google Translate. And so you got to find real creative ways to get around it. Um, and so, you know, there, there's, these are like, you know, I think you're going to talk a little bit about how do you find compounders. Um, I think this is where some of the stuff comes in is just figure out where no one else is crazy enough to look. Um, well, you set up the segue, Tom, and, uh, cause you actually were even before segue, you said, there you go. Segue, you know, I mean, even before you even said that you when you were talking about how, you know, there's an art to this. And I think that's where we're going to be able to fill in the extra half hour to 45 minutes for this roundtable today is discussing the art of finding those compounders. So, you know, uh, 
your owner, Calvin, you guys want to jump in there and, and how, how do we identify these opportunities out there? Um, <clears throat> the way, the way I look at it is that, um, when I started investing, of course, I'm been always focusing on companies, which of course the RE has to be great itself. Uh, but of course, again, you know, like what Tom had mentioned, you know, like where do you get RE from, you know? Um, and sometimes the high ROE could be uh, very deceiving as well, especially if they pay out huge amount of dividends that kind of like drain out equity. So um, what I actually move beyond like kind of experimenting this year a little bit as well is really setting the bar really high, you know, for, um, you know, if you look at a corporate life cycle, of course, there are certain businesses that um, they're at they maturity, but yet they're compounding really well. So if you ask me, is Costco at maturity? I would say probably uh, slightly a bit early to the maturity, but where I'm looking at right now is really looking for companies that's riding the S curve, right? That means at a very start of rapid growth in, in, in revenue. Um, and, and to me, I always ask myself like, what is going to sustain this huge revenue growth, right? It, it, and, and what does revenue growth really uh, represent? It really represents customers' validation, right? That means customers have a unique, um, have a, have a satisfaction you know, they feel satisfied that they will just come back time and time again. It's just like a bit like Costco, right? So one of the company which um, I think the way I, you know, utilize, um, so, so I don't really screen like ROEs these days, but what I really do is to screen for uh, rapid growth in, in earning, uh, rapid growth in sales. Then, you know, I'll just kind of like go deep into the business, right? And ask myself like, what's unique about them? Why do they um, deserve the, the right to actually dominate in this industry. And to me, um, maybe it's the way I look at it from the Asia point of view is that actually there's no short of uh, VC money. In fact, um, a lot of business that I see today, they, they make the mistake of uh, reporting profits or, or choosing to report profits, you know, instead of reinvesting themselves. And as a result, you know, players who don't mind a lower cut um, lower, um, let's say a take rate instead of like, like a, a technology platform, right? If they don't mind taking a, a lower take rate, they could actually dominate quite easily and then they kind of build on the value proposition. So uh, where I'm looking at right now is really, if you ask me about compounders, I, I feel that I'm actually building a thesis in my head. Like what are those businesses that they are loss making today just because they are kind of like building their ecosystem out and eventually they must have means and mechanism to lock in the customers either through subscriptions or either through, um, um, you know, uh, behavior, right? And from there, you know, I must see a very clear path where they could uh, monetize. Because for example, in, in Asia, where, where I'm at today, um, there are two e-commerce players that's battling out, right? You have Lazada, which is owned by Alibaba. You have Shopee that's owned by C Group, right? And C Group is, of course, you know, undercharging themselves on, on, you know, on obvious intention, you know, kind of to lock in the customer base and you know you kind of build a liquidity in the marketplace you have more sellers more buyers that makes the marketplace a more vibrant place and once you kind of have a like 30 percent or 50 percent lead away from your second competitor and the more you charge the same take rate your place will not run away and from there actually as an e-commerce player your your margins are usually very very high so really um i i don't think there's a exact clear method to look at that but i really uh, prefer to buy companies that they may not be obvious compounders but yeah, emerging compounders. But again, that actually puts things to, to be a bit more uh, subjective, but that really is where uh, I think deep analysis and meeting people and chatting with them really gives me that, that unique insight. And of course, 
I also do think that uh, obvious compounders definitely is on the safer side, but um, if we are, if I'm able to um, analyze one company that is an emerging compounder that is not known to many people yet, the returns could actually be uh, far more rewarding. So that's how I actually uh, look for compounders uh, currently. Yeah, I was gonna say, you know, it, it, you know, we brought up this idea, or I said, you know, this, there's this, there's an art to it, and I would think some people that are listening in, or or some of our, you know, consistent listeners. Are, are thinking, well, is there a quantitative approach? And there's almost an art to the quantitative approach just to get your start even to a degree. You know, so, I mean, um, that's just my quick comment on that, whether it was good or not, we'll, you know, we'll leave it up to everybody else. You know, please leave a comment if you thought that was a, a dumb comment. <laughs> but your own, I, I saw you, uh, you took yourself off mute. You know, did, did you have a response to that as well? No, I mean, I was gonna just say, I think, you can you find compounders the same way you find every other investment it's through being naturally curious about how businesses make money wanting to study them when there's an interesting product or service that you hear about or that you use or that your friends are reading about you try to figure out if it's a good business model and if it's public or if it has public competitors you run screens you read barons you read microcap club um you share ideas with your friends and um, shout out ian yeah, shout out Ian. And there's no, there's no wrong way to find a compounder or make or find any investment where you can make money. I mean, if you make money, that's a win. So it doesn't really matter how you find it. The real advice on how to find just just investments in general is never satisfying, I think, for people to hear because um, I'm not going to beat an algo or whatever AI or whatever all the crap I don't understand. I'm not, I'm not going to beat them, um, you know, and and screening all the numbers and getting that perfectly. I think the way you find ideas kind of like you guys are just saying is you develop an unhealthy obsession with investing, spend way too much time doing it. You go down some rabbit holes and then every once in a while, I mean, I, I'm telling you, I don't know how I found half my favorite investments. Like I started somewhere, started doing something else. And then before I know it, I'm like researching this thing for two, three weeks. And then like people are like, Oh, how'd you find that? I'm like, I kind of don't know. <laughs> like you just, you go down a rabbit hole, and it, you, you know, it's, you really got to like investing and be intellectually curious in this, I think. Um, there, there's no shorthand way to do it. Um, you know, but, it, but for sure, we can start listing ideas uh, here if that's. Uh, well, I, I figured, I figured <laughs> maybe, maybe this might be a good question here. This, this could be fun. You know, we, we, we talk about uh, value traps out there. So are there compounder traps or you know, we'll call compounders compounder traps. That's what compounder will now be known as. So, I mean, are, are there are there compounder traps or compounders out there? Anybody? I'll say yes. Um, a compounder trap is one that I think either has less durable growth than you underwrite, or um, that is lower quality business than the market appreciates such that competitive dynamics will prevent it from continuing to earn the rates of return that it's earning today, whether it's in the future or, you know, very far in the future or very soon, um, or paying a thousand times, you know, normalized earnings for something that you're underwriting for a 10 year hold period or a 10 year growth runway before it hits maturity. Because I think it's impossible to overcome multiple compression unless you grow a lot. And so, 
if something has an addressable market, you know, if something does a hundred dollars of revenue and you think you can get to 300 over time in a, in, a, in a very attractive way by reinvesting at attractive rates of return, but you're paying like 10,000 bucks for that thing. Um, or you're assume you're underwriting as if it's going to get to 10,000 bucks of revenue. I just think you're, you're going to be disappointed with the outcome. Yeah. I mean, you know, a compounder trap, if you think about it, right? Like investments, you, you put up thesis pillars underneath them, um, about a business you say, you know, you try to simplify things as much as possible and say, okay, well, I think here's my thesis for why this is a good business, why the price is right, why the timing is right, why all these things are going on. And you end up with certain thesis pillars. And, you know, when you're wrong, it's because usually it's because one or two of them got kicked out. Um, and, and maybe you got kicked out because you, you didn't do good due diligence and you missed stuff. Um, sometimes he kicks out because, well, you actually, you did do good due diligence and there was, there's probabilities in life and, you know, the chips went against you. And, and of course you need to adjust your belief in those cases. Um, you know, I, you know, those thesis pillars, I think are probably the traps. Um, for example, if you're investing in a business because you think it's run by a capital allocation genius and that guy is 90 years old, um, you know, it, you know, looking at an actuary table would say that under the best chance possible, he doesn't have <laughs> the time necessary to compound that much further. Um, and of course, I'm not talking about anyone in particular right now. Um, the, uh, <laughs> so, so don't, don't, no Berkshire people, please don't start, you know, sending angry messages. Okay. I'm the biggest Buffett fan of them all. All right. So, yeah, but like, so, so like, you know, like that could be a compounder trap, right? A compounder trap could be something that's had an amazing history of growth, but it's just kind of near the end of its growth runway. Um, compounder trap, you know, you mentioned competitive pressures that could like cut way into margins. The margins were never quite sustainable. Um, you know, it's, uh, Tech, you know, technology. I mean, it's, it's actually, I mean, that's the biggest risk with compounding is like, I think the pace of change now is just a lot faster. Corporate lifespans are shorter. Um, and kind of, if you, if you think about it, um, like it's just, you know, you look at this, like I'm sure taxi cab medallions, the return was just phenomenal on those for years. And if you were trying to sort out the risk of what was going to kill that, you know, I doubt the cell phone was at the top of your list. Um, and yet that's what it was. So, um, you know, it could be almost anything. And that's why you got to be cognizant of price paid. I mean, that's really, that's where price paid comes in. It comes in, you got to be a little bit humble about your ability to predict the future and just, just not pay a price that counts on everything going exactly the way you plan and hope for in 10 years. Cause I think that's probably going to get you in trouble. Yeah, I guess I just want to add on to uh, Yenron and Home. I absolutely agree with them. I think it's actually very well covered. Um, but maybe I just want to backtrack a little bit, like how can we find good compounders, right? I think one of the qualitative uh, signs we can look at actually is management, right? So um, I think looking at transcripts, um, I think that's really important and certain characteristics that we want. So the thing about compounders are, is, you know, you, you can't really see, you can't really describe what the compounders uh, are but you have some silhouette, some faint ideas and some clues. It's like a, I would say like a zigzag puzzle, right? So when I look at management teams, 
I am actually very aware of the words that they use in the earnings transcript, right? Um, are they innovative, you know, kind of like extend the corporate life cycle, kind of extend that competitive age that they have? Are they able to innovate on behalf of customers? Are they um, growth-minded? Do they build great culture? And I think more importantly as well, uh, if they don't talk about it in the earnings transcript, but at least, um, you know, call them up, you know, and, and ask them about capital allocation, right? Like, how do you actually spend your money? What if there's like extra a million dollars that comes into your business right now? Like, where are you going to spend it? And why are you going to spend it? And what kind of returns, you know, what are some hurdle rates that you're looking for certain projects that you have? And I think more importantly, you know, um, I, I do discover that, you know, most CEOs that tend to thrive for a long time is, you know, having this, I would call it like a productive uh, paranoia. You want to be productive. You want to be paranoid for the good reasons. And I think, over time, that's how you kind of avoid um, compounders, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more, especially, I mean, especially in where we all hunt in, in microcaps. I mean, you know, uh, management and being able to assess management, reading those earnings calls, seeing a video interview that they do, how they're allocating, cap, I mean, capital allocation. I mean, that is all just so crucial to really being able to locate you know, just winners in general, whether they're compounders or not, just winners in general. Um, so, I mean, I, I think, honestly, I, th I think we pretty much covered everything that has to do with compounding. I mean, is there, any, does anybody have any final thoughts on where to find them, you know, what it is, or just, you know, y'all have so much experience. I mean, is there anything that, you know, you might want to warn anybody who's watching this to be careful of when, uh, uh, really looking for compounders and measuring ROE and all this kind of stuff. Um, Tom? Yeah, well, here we go. Yeah, I'll do the warning, right? Because because I actually make fun of compounder bros all the time. So I should probably drop my warning in, um, even though I love compounders myself. Um, the uh, so, so I just brought up a quote here, um, which I feel like is uh, kind of gospel among all of the, um, among people who love compounding. Uh, it's from Munger. It says, if a business owner 6% on capital over 40 years and you hold it, for that 40 years, you're not going to make a much different, uh, you know, return than 6%, even if you originally buy it at a huge discount. Conversely, if a business earns 18% on capital over 20 or 30 years, even if you pay an expensive looking price, uh, you end up with a fine result. And so, you know, it's true. It's like what he says is true. You can prove it out mathematically, but like it's true. Uh, return on capital drives long-term returns. Now, the problem is, is I, I think a lot of smart investors have now internalized that lesson over the last decade. And I think we've seen it in the sheer number of compounder pitches that you can find out there. Um, and, and if they all hit, the market's going to go up for 18, 20, 25% a year for the next 30 years. And that's not going to happen, which means obviously a lot of them are going to be wrong. Um, what, what I think a lot of investors don't properly internalize is how hard it is to identify and predict ex ante, you know, a business that's going to earn 18% over such a long period, 20, 30 years. Um, and, and I think it's probably because, you know, we're all so arrogant that we think you're, we're, we're smart enough to do this. Um, you know, predicting the future is really hard. Um, and, uh, you know, like I said, pace of change is only accelerated. You know, companies get disrupted a lot quicker, I think, now than they used to. 
So, you know, again, I, I, my warning with compounders is this, you should never buy a business just because it's cheap. If it's, if it's a poor quality business and it's, it's got poor return on capital, don't buy it. That's a value trap because it's just going to stay cheap forever because the business sucks and you shouldn't have bought it for what you bought it for. And that said, if you're paying up price-wise on a compounder type that requires you to nail 95 predictions over what's going to happen in the next 10 years, um, that's going to be tough, you know? And I, I, I think, you know, old school value investing is as important as ever right now. I know it's getting out of fashion, but margin of safety and price paid is as much about, it's not about just buying something cheap. It's about, you know, buying something that's not priced for perfection, that's not priced to do what you think it can do. And if it doesn't do it, you're not going to lose as much. And if it does do it, you're going to make more. And, and, and in order to do that, you're going to have to look in a lot of weird places. You have to look at spinoffs and all sorts of special situations. And we can go through the long list of places you could look here. Um, but, you know, don't forget value. Don't forget price pay would be what I'd say. Nice. That was good. That was I have nothing good to add to that. That was great. Yeah. That Nothing was, else to add. That was really great, Tom. Wonderful. That was that was that was a plus right there. You know, I think uh, I think that's a great way to end it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what's happening, man? <laughs> no, no, the new mic, the new mic drop is like. Oh, I have oh, the phone. Sorry, guys. Pod <laughs> yeah, the pod, <laughs> the pod drop. <laughs> I think my phone's broken now, so that's uh, so whoopsie. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> Just kidding. Stuff. All right, guys. Well, with that. Let's get everybody's uh, where, where people can go and find more information about each of you. So uh, uh, Kelvin, let's start with you. Where can people go and follow you on social media and find more information about you? All right, everyone. Uh, you can find me at Slingshot Cap. That's uh, ending with C-A-P. Uh, Slingshot Cap. That's it. That's it. Very good. All right, your own. Uh, you could find me on Twitter, one main capital, the number one, the word main, M-A-I-N, capital, and my website and email address, contact information are on there as well. And um, unless you are a lawyer or someone who wants to sue me for using the word compounder, in which case you could find my lawyer, um, actually just reach out to me. I'll give you the lawyer's contact info. <laughs> hey, Tom, where can people find yeah. And I'm going to say, you know, if you're, you know, your, your company starts with a D and ends in herbal, um, and you want to file a lawsuit or, or, or talk to me or be generally litigious, I would ask you to reach out to Bobby Kraft um, at FNN uh, and uh, he'll, he'll take care of that. And uh, you, if you want to find me for any other non-litigious reason whatsoever, I, I always love to hear from non-litigious people. Um, my website is www.pfh, P is in Paul, F is in Frank, H is in Henry, CAP dot com and uh my twitter is at pfh capital and uh and sometimes i even go on there and do stuff very good all right well you know look the name of this episode is going to be what are compunders so we don't have to worry about anything we're in the clear you know and we didn't even you know there's lots of definitions so you know we're, we're good i think i don't know i'm not a lawyer <laughs> anyways you can find more information on me uh on twitter at bobby k craft b-o-b-b-y-k-k-r-a-f-t you can follow us uh, on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash SNN wire. And um, yeah, that's all I got. And uh, hey, a fellow, uh, you know, US people will get through this week. And uh, Kelvin, uh, I hope you're enjoying the show.
Awesome. <laughs> Kelvin, I'm coming to your today. couch. Yeah. <laughs> Kelvin, I called your couch right before this program started. It's mine. Okay. Uh, I'm going to buy a ticket soon. All right. I'll take, I'll take, I'll, I'll take, I'll bring a hammock and be out on the deck. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Good stuff, guys. Have a good one. All right.